Our scripture focus today is found in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 14 through 23. Now the spirit of the Lord had left Saul, and an evil spirit sent from the Lord began to torment him. So Saul's servants said to him, you see that an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord command your servants here in your presence to look for someone who knows how to play the lyre. Whenever the evil spirit from God comes on you, that person can play the lyre, and you'll feel better. Then Saul commanded his servants, find me someone who plays well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the lyre. He is also a valiant man, a warrior, eloquent, handsome, and the Lord is with him. Then Saul dispatched messengers to Jesse and said, send me your son David, who is with the sheep. So Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a wineskin, and one young goat, and sent them by his son David to Saul. When David came to Saul and entered his service, Saul loved him very much, and David became his armor bearer. Then Saul sent word to Jesse, let David remain in my service, for he has found favor with me. And whenever the spirit from God came on Saul, David would pick up his lyre and play. And Saul would then be relieved, feel better, and the evil spirit would leave him. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. When Jesus was walking throughout Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of his kingdom and casting out demons and healing the sick, doing all the things that he did in his life and his ministry, he often looked out upon the crowds of people who were clamoring to hear from him and to see him and to interact with him on some level. And, and he would look out upon the multitudes and the crowds and his heart would break for them. Because he often saw in those moments a people who were distressed and dejected. A people who were often described as being shepherdless. They were like sheep without a shepherd. And this stirred compassion within Jesus as he noticed the afflictions, the various afflictions that people were enduring as they journeyed through a fallen world. And one day he turned to his disciples and he said, hey guys, uh, the harvest is abundant. There's lots of needs ready to be alleviated. There, there are lots of people ready to be swept into the reality of my kingdom. The, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. And then he told his disciples, I want you to pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send out more workers, more laborers into his harvest. In that moment, Jesus' solution to the afflictions he was witnessing, wrecking lives and those that he would see and, and serve, the, the solution to that was for him to summon and to send out more servants who would engage people in ways very similar to how Jesus had been engaging those needs. He was praying for people to, to be raised up and to send out who would go forth under the power and the influence of the Holy Spirit to do the work of the kingdom, to serve afflicted lives and to alleviate afflicted souls. But he looked forward to this day because at the time, he was the only one filled with the Holy Spirit. He was the only one anointed by the Spirit to do the things that he was able to do. But he anticipated a day when that would change. A day that our friend Jake called attention to at the start of our gathering, reminding us that this is the Sunday where churches all over the world are remembering Pentecost. That powerful moment in Acts chapter 2 when when followers of Jesus were gathered and they were praying and they were anticipating the Lord to do something for them, to provide them with the helper, the comforter, the guide, the presence of the Lord. And as they prayed in the upper room, Acts chapter 2 told us that stuff started to get, started to shake up and things began to happen and the Holy Spirit came upon God's people and the church was birthed in that moment. And that moment represented a seismic shift in how God would relate to his people. You see, prior to then, and when you kind of survey the Spirit of the Lord's presence in the Old Testament, you find that the Spirit of the Lord only came down and filled up select individuals. 
usually to do unique acts of deliverance or to occupy special roles in the history of God's people, i.e. the king. But the Holy Spirit did not always stay. The Spirit of the Lord wasn't a permanent presence among those that he would come upon and empower to do special things. And his presence certainly wasn't pervasive. Meaning the Spirit of the Lord did not fill up all of God's people all of the time. In order for that to happen, something needed to change. In order for that to happen, the world was waiting for the ultimate anointed one to show up. For Jesus the King to come and to live and to die and to rise again, the spoils of his victory would be the gift of his Holy Spirit. The spoils of his victory over sin, Satan, and death would be to pour his spirit out upon all of his people so that all of his people would be filled up forever by the presence and the power of the Lord. You say it was the the goal for the anointed one to create a multitude of small a anointed ones. Men and women like you and I, filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit to serve an afflicted world, to help afflicted souls. And if you have your Bibles, grab them, turn them open to 1 Samuel chapter 16, because we're finding in the passage that was read for us a moment ago, an Old Testament picture of that New Testament reality, of this New Testament reality that you and I are privileged to live into today. We are given a picture of that here in 1 Samuel chapter 16. Now, if you remember from last week, we kind of have to take this passage and combine it with what we learned last week about the anointing of David because the entirety of this chapter sets up a contrast between the newly anointed King David, uh, the the king of God's choosing, contrasting him with the previously anointed king of Israel's choosing known as Saul. And what we find in this chapter is that David is ascending in the plans and the purposes of God, while Saul is descending in the plans and the purposes of God. And the first part of of verse 14 that was read a moment ago is one of the saddest statements that you could ever read in the Bible, where we are told that the Spirit of the Lord departed Saul, that the Spirit would no longer be with Saul, anointing him for his role as king as it once did. Now, you'll notice that the narrative of 1 Samuel will continue and Saul will continue doing things that, uh, as king, but know that he is king in name only, but he's no longer king in anointing. The anointing has moved to David, this new king of God's own choosing. Now, why did this happen? Why did the Spirit of the Lord depart from Saul? Why did he leave Saul. Well, if you recall from previous weeks of just journeying through this book, we have seen time and time again, Saul disobey the Lord. Saul did not uphold his covenant commitment to the Lord. He wasn't executing his duties as king in ways that corresponded with the Torah or the law or the word of God. And he was a repeat, unrepentant offender. And eventually the Lord disciplined him, judged him. We're told that he tore the kingdom from Saul's hand. And here in chapter 16, you're reading kind of the fallout of that in Saul's life. The spirit of the Lord has departed from him. But then we're told another fairly provocative thing. We're told not only did the spirit of the Lord leave him, we're told an evil spirit from the Lord was sent to him and began to torment him. Now just pause right there. A theological drumbeat resounding in the background of every single biblical text is that the Lord is sovereign over all of creation. And when we say the Lord is sovereign over all of creation, we mean all of creation, that which is considered good and that which is considered evil. There was a book written some time ago called God in a Brothel. It was written by a guy named Daniel Walker, and he tells a story of how he, as an investigator, would try to infiltrate brothels to to gather evidence that might help uh, liberate women from human trafficking or kids from human trafficking, and he would engage dark, seedy, difficult 
environments. And what he tells us in his testimony is that what gave him courage to move in those directions with a steadfast confidence in the sovereignty of God. It was knowing that the Lord is sovereign over good and evil. These are his words. He said, I had not been conducting investigations into sex trafficking very long, and, and being inside a brothel still left me feeling vulnerable and afraid. I was afraid of my sinful nature. I was afraid of perpetrators and corrupt officials who were profiting from organized crime. And I was afraid of going into what I perceived as enemy territory. But as he closed his eyes and he prayed, said, God changed my perspective. A small voice reminded me that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And then the words of an old hymn came to mind. This is my father's world. And I saw for the first time that the brothel I was standing in was as much a part of God's creation as any beautiful mountain or crystal cathedral, and that God had in no way surrendered it to anyone. He had not lost control of what's happening in the world. There's not a single inch. There's not a single inch in God's creation over which he is not sovereign. And there is not a single instance over which the Lord isn't in control. And that includes moments of spiritual prosperity and moments of spiritual adversity. It includes opportunities for deliverance and discipline. It includes both judgment and salvation. The Lord is sovereign over all of it. And so when you look at this moment in Saul's life, Saul is experiencing the Lord's discipline because of his disobedience. And the Lord is leveraging spiritual forces in a way to bring discipline and judgment to Saul's life. Now, of all the things that we may want to say about what's going on in Saul's, what Saul is experiencing and, and trying to figure out how that applies to us, of all the things that we might want to think about and say about that, there are two things that are crystal clear that we can bank on. Two things that we can say that are crystal clear from what Saul is enduring and from this example in the story. One is disobedience always makes us vulnerable. Sin and disobedience will always make us vulnerable. Sin has a way of opening us up to divine discipline, which can take the form, according to this passage and others that I'm going to show you in a minute, Divine discipline that can take the form of demonic harassment. You see, when you survey the landscape of the Bible, you're going to find two types of discipline popping up in the lives of God's people. You have what's called perfecting discipline. This is discipline that arises in a person's life not as a result of any sin or disobedience on their part. This is discipline that may arise in a disciple's life because the Lord intends to refine them and to shape them and to help them grow in their apprehension of God's grace and in reliance upon God's spirit. And we are told in 2 Corinthians 12 that this perfecting discipline of the Lord can at times take the form of demonic harassment. Listen to Paul's testimony. Hear Paul's words as he speaks to this dynamic in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. So that I would not exalt myself. A thorn in the flesh was given to me a messenger of Satan to torment me so that I would not exalt myself. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it would leave me, but he said, my grace is sufficient for you, and my power is made perfect in weakness. See, what Saul and Paul's experiencing in this moment wasn't a form of corrective discipline, it seems, as a result of sin or disobedience. It was more preventative it was to keep him from becoming proud. It was to keep him from becoming elated. It was to cultivate humility within his heart and designed by the Lord to take him deeper in his appreciation of God's grace. Now, because God is sovereign, because God is sovereign, he could have removed this thorn from Paul's flesh. Because God is sovereign, he could have alleviated this affliction brought on by this messenger of Satan, whatever that means. Because God is sovereign, he could have easily done that, but because God is wise, he chose not to. 
The Lord is wise in all of his dealings with all of his people. And the Lord is far more concerned with our eternal holiness than he is with our momentary happiness. He may allow affliction to linger if it serves that purpose. And so Paul's affliction lingered longer than he would have liked. But according to the wisdom of the Lord, God was working out something much deeper, something much richer, something much more eternal in Paul's heart than his momentary happiness or his momentary comfort. You see, following Christ in a fallen world, following Christ in a fallen world as sinners saved by grace, that is a dynamic enterprise. It is not static, and it is certainly not simplistic. The Lord is dynamic in all of his dealings with his people. And you see these dynamics at play in stories like 1 Samuel 16, 2 Corinthians 12, and some other passages that we'll see here in a moment. Now, some of you may be here today, and you have you are experiencing some forms of affliction. They may not be spiritual like what Saul experienced or Paul, but maybe mental affliction or emotional affliction. Some form of affliction is, is pestering your life and you've asked the Lord to remove it, but for some reason or another, he hasn't. He hasn't removed that affliction from your life. He hasn't taken that thorn from your flesh. But, and if that is the case, I simply want you to hear me say, that doesn't mean the Lord is against you. The Lord is for his people. The Lord is for his purposes within his people. And he is more committed to your refinement, to your holiness, to your growth than you are. And so if affliction is lingering longer than you hope or than you like, let me just encourage you to fight the fight of faith. Believe that the Lord loves you. Believe that the Lord is good. Believe that he is working out glory for you. A glory that you would have never dreamt up for yourself. A glory far greater than anything you could ever imagine. This is why Paul would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that, that the Lord is hammering out in the midst of our afflictions. He's hammering out an eternal weight of glory for his people. And so if you are afflicted right now and your affliction seems to be lingering, keep fighting to believe in the goodness of God. Keep fighting to believe that the Lord has glory in store for you. But when you look at 1 Samuel chapter 16, more pertinent to, his, to Saul's experience wasn't the perfecting discipline of the Lord. It's what we might call the correcting discipline of the Lord. What Saul is experiencing seems to be explicitly tied to disobedience in his life. He's made himself vulnerable. He's lost his anointing, and now he's being afflicted in this way. And correcting discipline of the Lord may come as a result of our disobedience, as a result of our sin. This is why in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul would warn you and he would warn me. Listen to his words. He said, be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity. Another way of, influence, of translating that is don't give the devil a chance to exert influence, to take ground in your life, to, to invade you and to afflict you. He says don't give him an opportunity. And what opportunity is he speaking of? Well, he's talking to sin. He's talking about sin and disobedience. He's saying don't make yourself vulnerable to demonic harassment by being disobedient. And so the question is, then what do we do? How, we can't be perfect, right? We can't live a sinless hour, much less a sinless day or a sinless week or a sinless month. So what do we do in that moment? Well, we leverage the power of the gospel and we trust the goodness of our God. We say to ourselves, okay, well, if I'm not to allow the sun to go down on my anger, what does that mean? Well, I think it may... Point me in the direction of rather than concealing my sin, I start confessing my sin. Rather than hiding my sin in the dark, I bring my sin into the light and I'm living a life of constant confession and repentance. 
recognizing that it is in the light, that's where life flourishes. It is in the light, that's where demons flee. It is in the light where affliction is oftentimes relieved, especially the affliction that may be the result of the corrective discipline of the Lord. And so we hear this warning in Ephesians chapter 4, and we assume a posture of repentance as we are journeying through a fallen world. And unfortunately, this was a posture that Saul never assumes. Repentance was never a part of Saul's story. There's no reason why his life wound up the way that it did. He was, it was devoid of repentance. So disobedience, that's one thing we can say about that story. Disobedience makes us vulnerable. But then the second thing we can say about it is that disobedience makes us miserable. Disobedience will always make us miserable. It's clear that Saul is miserable in the story two times. The word torment is used to describe what he's experiencing. He's not happy. He's not whole. He is not healthy. He is miserable. Now, the irony of this moment is that usually when you and I disobey and we don't trust the Lord and we kind of do things our way, usually when we do, it's because we are wanting to be happy. And we think our way of being happy is better than the Lord's way of being happy. And so we kind of do our thing and we kind of forget that temptation approaches us uh, in a way that kind of takes the form of a bait concealing a hook. And so temptation will come and it will appeal to our appetites. It will appeal to what we want. It will appeal to what we desire. It will dangle happiness before us. And we'll think, well, if we take that or if we get that or if we do that, we will be happy all the while we are failing to see the hook that that bait is concealing. And so when we bite it, what happens? We bite it. We find ourselves snared. We bite it. We find ourselves stuck. The irony of disobedience is that oftentimes we disobey in pursuit of some happiness that usually looks like freedom to us, the freedom to do what we want when we want, but then we find ourselves forfeiting our freedom because that hook sinks itself into our mouth and all of a sudden we're no longer calling the shots. Distorted desires are calling the shots. Unrenewed thinking is calling the shots. Demonic influence is calling the shots. We are hooked on the end of someone else's line and there is no happiness to be found there. I've never seen a fish smile while being reeled into the boat. It just doesn't happen. Well, disobedience makes us miserable. The Apostle Peter experienced this. When you think about his story, Peter was the one who denied Jesus three times. And we're told that after he denied Jesus three times, he walked outside and wept bitterly. He was miserable because of his disobedience. You think about the young man who took his inheritance and he squandered it on reckless living. This prodigal son who soon found himself face down in a pig pen. The most miserable place a Jewish man could be. He's there because of his disobedience. He's there because of his sin. Disobedience makes us vulnerable. Disobedience makes us miserable. And when our disobedience is devoid of repentance, devoid of confession, it will always end there. You know, years later, after this instance in 1 Samuel chapter 16, David himself would disobey. David would sin. He wouldn't do what is right. He would seek happiness that was a hook concealed with bait that took the form of a woman that he wanted to take as his own wife. But this woman was married to another man, so he conspired to have her husband killed. And then he manipulated the situation to take this woman as his own. And he sinned egregiously against the Lord and against his image bearers. It was a terrible moment, but there came a time when David confessed his sin and he began to repent of his sin. But one of the things he feared most was he remembered what Saul, how Saul's life ended. And he didn't want that to happen to him. And so he's, I I don't want to wind up like Saul. Listen to what he confesses in Psalm 51. 
He pleaded with the Lord, do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. I saw that happen to Saul. I don't want that to happen to me. Then he said, restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving a willing spirit. And he confesses, he repents. You see, the difference between Saul and David wasn't that one was perfect and one wasn't. The difference between Saul and David was repentance. It was confession. It was a willingness to walk in the light, which David was willing to do while Saul refused to do. Repentance is the difference between judgment and salvation. Repentance is the difference between corrective discipline and deliverance. Repentance is the difference between prospering spiritually or struggling with spiritual adversity. Genuine repentance is never a part of Saul's story, but it would come to characterize David's story, and that's the difference between David and Saul. And my hope and my prayer is that repentance would come to characterize our stories as well, that we would recognize that the Lord is kind, that the Lord is good, that the Lord can be trusted through thick and thin, that he has plans and purposes that will, in the end, make our hearts happy and our lives Holy, So we trust the Lord as we journey with him through this life, fighting the fight of faith to believe that God is for us and that he is not against us no matter what affliction may assail us as we walk through this world. Where you look back at the story and in a stroke of sheer grace, we find this newly anointed David being brought in to serve the afflicted Saul. And there's some powerful things here for us. In David, we find an example of what it means for an anointed servant to be put in position by the sovereignty of God to serve an afflicted soul. And there's lots of things that we can glean as far as how you and I have been positioned by the Lord, where we are in this world right now to serve an afflicted city, to serve an afflicted world, to help those who are suffering and struggling through a fallen world. I'll give you four descriptions of an anointed servant taken from David's example. One is that an anointed servant is someone who is a steward of talents. You see this in David's example because we're told in verse 18 that one of Saul's servants recommended that David be the one who's brought in to minister to Saul as he's being tormented. And he says, I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the lyre. He is also a valiant man, a warrior, eloquent, handsome, and the Lord is with him. He's saying, David is, of all things that David was, he was talented, he was a musician. Now, we don't know all the circumstances behind how this servant discovered this about David, but it's clear that his talent as a musician preceded him in this conversation. And we begin to see how an anointed servant is a steward of talent. And what that means is is that you and I have been blessed with various talents by virtue of being created by God and established in this world and, and fashioned in his image. He's given each of us talents that he expects and intends for us to steward in such a way that will help other people flourish, in such a way that it will bring a little bit of alleviation to an afflicted world. Now, for David, it was music. For you, it may be something else. It may be a high IQ or physical athletic ability or artistic instincts or spatial recognition, whatever the case may be. You have talents in certain areas that would allow you to bring blessing, benefit, relief, and alleviation to an afflicted world that is struggling under the tyranny of sin and Satan and various forms of suffering. And this is true of every one of us. We all have various talents or gifts that we can leverage in that direction, and we want to think about our talents not as closed-fisted possessions that are ours by right, so we boast in them and become arrogant with them. No, we embrace our talents with as open-handed possibilities, recognizing that the Lord has wired us the way that he has and entrusted us with certain talents that we can now use by his grace and for his glory to help people out. It's real simple. David is doing that. He's a musician. He has an opportunity to serve this afflicted soul, and he does so. Now, the difference between 
a talent which everybody has and an ability that not everybody has, the difference between a talent and and an ability is called discipline. And so when we take the talents, the raw materials that God has given to us in our lives, and we are disciplined to cultivate them and to grow in them and to use them and to practice them and to improve them, suddenly we'll find your talent becoming an ability. And you'll find the Lord in his sovereignty putting you in positions where you can leverage your abilities in the service of others that will help them Flourish that will help bring a little bit of alleviation to the afflictions that they may be experiencing in this life. This is the whole point of Jesus' parable in Matthew chapter 25 where he talks about a master leaving town and he drops talents in the lives of three of his servants. To one he gave one, to another two, to another five. And, and he expected those servants to use their talents, to put them to use, to be disciplined, to steward them well. And two of the three failed to do that. But one of them did do that. And when he returned, he, I'm sorry, two of the three did do that. And one of them failed to do that because he was afraid. He didn't want to lean into the world and do the things that he had opportunity to do. And so he, when the master returned, he blessed the two that did with more. Whereas he took what he had given to the other servant away. And we consider, in light of that parable, the opportunities and the talents that we have, the raw materials of our lives, and we wonder, are we disciplined enough to steward them in God's direction for the good of others? And so David here, this anointed servant, the very first thing we see him doing is that he is a steward of his talents. He's using his abilities to serve Saul. But then a second dynamic of an anointed servant is that an anointed servant is a student of experience. A student of experience. You see, the messengers, when they went to retrieve David to come and help Saul, notice where David is. They go and get him, and he is with the sheep. See, before David was anointed king and before he would ascend to the throne, he served as a shepherd. He labored and worked as a shepherd. And his experiences as a shepherd would be drawn upon time and time again in, his, in the way in which he ruled and reigned as king. He was a student of the experiences that he had, which is why when you get to Psalm 78, listen to how David is described there. In Psalm 78, we read that God chose David his servant and took him from the sheep pens. He brought him from tending ewes to be shepherd over his people, Jacob, over Israel, his inheritance. He shepherded them with a pure heart and guided them with skillful hands. He was a student of the experiences that he had as shepherd, and he brought those experiences to bear in the way that he would be king for the people of Israel. In the next chapter, we see another example of this. When David goes out and he fights Goliath, one of the things that gave him confidence was the fact that he was a student of experience. He considered his experiences, and he learned from them. He grew through them. So listen to what he says. He told Saul in the next chapter, Your servant has been tending his father's sheep. Whenever a lion or a bear came and carried off a lamb from the flock, I went after it, struck it down, and rescued the lamb from its mouth. If it reared up against me, I would grab it by its fur, strike it down, and kill it. Your servant has killed lions and bears. This uncircumcised Philistine, referring to Goliath, will be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And then David said, The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. He was a student of experience. He learned from everything that he went through as he was shepherding sheep. And if you and I are going to serve an afflicted world as the anointed servants of God, it would do us well to learn and to study and to be students of the various experiences we have in this life. And that includes both positive experiences and negative experiences. Experiences with good things and experience with heavy things. No experience, no matter the nature of them, should go unstudied, should go unmeditated upon and thought through to figure out how can the Lord leverage these experiences so that I might, I might be a, bliss, a, a benefit and a blessing to an afflicted world. I was once talking to a disciple um, not too long ago who grew up in an abusive environment. 
And before meeting Jesus later in his life, he worried that he may be too broken to have a healthy family for himself one day. He worried that his past would spoil his future, but after meeting Jesus and thinking through the beauty and the wonder of the gospel, he began to learn how his past could be redeemed. And he began to discover how under the anointing and the power of the Holy Spirit, he might raise a family in holy rebellion against all the sin and the suffering he experienced in his younger days. And so now he is living as a holy rebel, redeeming his negative experiences in service of his family today that is now a beacon of hope to other people who might have come up in similar environments as they see what the Lord is doing in them and they say, there's, there's hope for me yet. Because the Lord can redeem that which, is, that which perhaps the enemy sought to ruin us with, the Lord can certainly redeem. And so my prayer is that our church will be filled with holy rebels who are constantly flipping the script on negative experiences, seeing how the God and his redeeming grace can turn the tables on them and leverage them in ways that will enable us to bless others and to chart a new, a new course. And so let me encourage you to take some time, perhaps over the next week, and just sit back and Reflect upon your past experiences, both the good ones and the bad ones, and to consider how God and his redeeming grace can, can take it all and use it all and, and empower you and position you to serve afflicted people around you right now. An anointed servant is a steward of talents, and they are students of experience. Anointed servants are stalwarts of peace. Now, that's a strange word, stalwarts. It's not a word I can pronounce very well, and it's not a word we use very often, but it's in, a, it's, a, it's in a good word. And I use it intentionally today because it's derived from Old English, and it's made up of two parts. Stall refers to place, and wart refers to worth. And so it's talking about a place of worth. So when I talk about us being stalwarts of peace, I'm saying that every place an anointed servant goes... Every place you step into, you are to promote and champion the value of peace. We are stalwarts of peace. The most important phrase in this passage is found at the end of verse 18, where we're told that the Lord was with David. Playing music was great. That served Saul well. But more importantly, the spirit of the Lord was within David. And his presence within David brought peace, brought relief, brought comfort. This is why Saul wanted to keep David in his service. So you look at verse 22. Saul sent word to Jesse, let David remain in my service for he has found favor with me. Whenever the spirit from God came on Saul, David would pick up his lyre and play and Saul would then be relieved, feel better, and the evil spirit would leave him. So it wasn't just the, the playing of music that brought relief to Saul's afflicted soul. It was the presence of the Lord in the life of his anointed one. Now this should elevate what it means for you and I to think about being the church. The church is a company of anointed ones filled with the Spirit of God so that wherever we go, the Lord's presence is particularly present, is showing up in the world in a concentrated form. And so that should enliven us to love and to serve and to engage an afflicted world well because we are animated sanctuaries. Our lives are the place where heaven and earth collide. This was God's design for the church, that we would be a multitude of anointed ones serving an afflicted world. My father was a chaplain in the National Guard back in Louisiana, and he rose to the rank of lieutenant colonel before he retired. Well, he found favor in a three-star general's eyes. And this general was the, was the commander for the whole Louisiana Guard, and he, and, my, and he really liked my dad. And so anytime there was trouble in the world and they were employed, deployed somewhere to serve and to help, like in Haiti after the earthquake and things like that, he always insisted that my dad not only come, but my dad would be in his presence, would be with him side by side as they were looking to provide relief and help to a troubled and struggled, struggling world. 
He would have my dad lead uh, him and other military officials in prayer every day and constantly insisting on my dad being there. Now, why was that? My dad's a nice guy, but there's got to be more to it than that, right? It wasn't just my dad's presence there with the, the general. It was the spirit of the Lord inhabiting my father that this general might not have been able to pinpoint, but you and I can look through the eyes of faith and realize that it was the spirit of the Lord within my father that this general was attracted to. And so he would bring my dad around. And when my dad would come around, he would bring peace and comfort to troubled, stressful situations just by being there, filled with the spirit of the Lord. Not long after this general retired, he was baptized and he came to faith in Jesus. And so the Lord's presence within his people can have a powerful impact in changing lives and affecting people. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. This is who you and I are to be. Now, being a peacemaker isn't a calling reserved for a select few. Peacemaking is what all of us should be about. Every place we go, we bring peace, seeking to make peace. Now, being a peacemaker doesn't mean that you become a pushover. And being a peacemaker doesn't mean that you become a spiritual pacifist. Notice how David is referred to in this text. He's not only described as being a musician. He's described as being valiant. He's described as a warrior. And yet he's making peace in the presence of Saul. So being a peacemaker doesn't mean you're a pushover. It doesn't mean that you're a spiritual pacifist. It means that you are engaging the real battle. And as peacemakers, we recognize that our enemy in the world isn't anyone created in the image of God. Our enemies in the world is everything behind that, that's distorting that, that's assaulting that, that's assailing that. That's why Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 6 that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil, spiritual forces in the heavens. For this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand. Stand therefore with the truth like a belt around your waist, righteousness like armor on your chest and your feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. In every situation, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. There's so much powerful imagery in there as it relates to spiritual warfare, but the one I want you to think about is the imagery of the enemy, the evil one, drawing arrows out of a quiver and attaching it to a bow and launching fiery arrows into the lives of men and women all around us. Now, when a flaming arrow lands on its target, what's going to happen? Well, a fire is going to start. And it's going to spread. It's going to grow. And if it goes unchecked, it's really going to do some damage. This is why when you're camping and if the wind comes and blows some of the embers out of your fire pit and over into a more dry space in the campsite and you see it starting to catch fire, what do you do in that moment? Well, if you want to do the quickest thing possible, you're going to run over there and you're just going to stomp on it. You're going to squash the flames beneath your feet. Well, I want you to think about what it means to be a peacemaker who have strapped on the shoes of the gospel of feet, what that means is, is that when we see affliction growing in people's lives, when we see the enemy's arrows landing and taking hit and starting fires, we go to them with the shoes of the gospel of peace on our feet and we stomp them out. We squash them out. We become, we minister with presence. We minister with peace. We minister with confidence in the midst of so much affliction, in the midst of so much that is assailing so many people, we go with the shoes of the gospel of peace and we stomp out the fires of affliction. You see, another way to think about peacemaking is a, peacemaking, a peacemaker is a firefighter. We fight fires as peacemakers. We go to hot places. We go to hard places spaces and we stomp out the fires of affliction that have taken root and that are growing in people's lives by being present, by being kind, by being good, by being gospel voices, by being filled and anointed by the Spirit to do things that we could not do on our own. But a peacemaker being a firefighter, that is not to be confused. That is certainly the different from being an arsonist. <laughs> I think there are too many arsonists in the church today. 
Too many people who have been given the Holy Spirit for so much more than they realize. And rather than fighting fires, they are starting them. And so I would encourage you to consider where you are right now. Are you more of a firefighter or an arsonist? Are you stomping out fires or are you igniting them? If we were to poll your, social, your circles of influence and ask those who know you best and those in your missional community, those in your DNA, those in your places of employment, those in your, the places where you play, if we were just to poll those environments, would they describe you as a firefighter or an arsonist? Are you a peacemaker or a trouble starter? And if your tendency or your pattern has been more to ignite and incite then you need to confess and you need to repent and you need to return to your peacemaking identity, living under the anointing and filling of the Holy Spirit, which brings me to the final aspect of what it means to be an anointed servant, put in position to serve afflicted souls. Fourth and finally, an anointed servant is a servant of the kingdom of God. This is what we are about. This is why we've been given the Spirit. The favor David finds with Saul would not last forever. Eventually, Saul is going to turn on David, and he's going to launch a campaign to kill him. He views David as a threat to his kingdom, and this was Saul's biggest problem. He did not serve the kingdom of God. He sought, rather, to serve his own kingdom. He was all about his reputation amongst his enemies. He was all about his reputation in Israel. He was not about the reputation of the Lord in the life of his people. And so he wasn't a servant of the kingdom of God. David, however, would prove to be. David would prove to be a servant of the kingdom of God. And we would see this in the way that David would honor Saul time and time again. Because there are moments in the narrative coming up where Saul had an opportunity to kill David. I'm sorry, David had an opportunity to kill Saul. And rather than taking advantage of that opportunity, David would show mercy He would show kindness. He would refrain. David would embody the passions and the priorities of the kingdom of God that calls us to love our enemies and even to bless those who persecute us. Anointed servants are able to do that because anointed servants are following in the wake of the ultimate anointed servant, the one who entered the world, bringing with him the kingdom of God, showing everyone what life looks like when he's in charge. And everywhere Jesus went, darkness would flee, demons would flee, diseases would flee, death itself would flee. Jesus, in the power of the Holy Spirit, the ultimate anointed one, stomping out the fires of affliction all over the place. And he would move towards the cross, giving up his life, dying in our place for our sins, rising from the grave, ascending to his throne, and then pour his spirit out upon us all so that we too may go into an afflicted world hot spaces and bring blessing bring relief bring ministry in Luke chapter 4 Jesus said of himself the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set free the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor And Jesus would say, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. I want you to go forth and to serve under the power of the Holy Spirit, an afflicted world, preaching good news, caring for captives, announcing the year of the Lord's favor to everyone that you come in contact with. Like Jesus, anointed servants serve an afflicted, an afflicted world. This is why the Hallows Church exists here in the city of Seattle. This is why we pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is why we are here. We've been positioned here by the sovereignty of God to serve an afflicted city filled with afflicted souls. And as we pray in that direction, we move our feet, trusting in the sovereignty of God to put us in positions where we can be most effective in helping people and introducing them to the gospel of Jesus. In every place we go, everywhere we step, we know that our sovereign God is going before us and he is going with us. This, again, was Daniel Walker's experience. Listen to his words one more time. As he would go into hot places, dark places to combat human trafficking, he said, 
I knew that God was in that brothel before I arrived, suffering with victims of sexual trafficking, witnessing their defilement night after night and sharing in their tears and that he would remain in the brothel long after I left. Any uncertainty I previously had about walking into such a dark and evil place vanished. Though not in an audible sense, I nevertheless heard his command and his call to go boldly in his name to such places as these to rescue the oppressed, defend the orphan, and to plead for the widow. We have been anointed by the Holy Spirit and placed here in the city of Seattle to do just that. So let's commit ourselves to relying upon the Spirit's presence, becoming stewards of talent, students of experience, stalwarts of peace, and servants of the kingdom of God, moving into the future with that on our minds and with that stirring in our hearts, recognizing that as the world transitions to a semi-post-COVID world, knowing that we are going to encounter many people who are suffering mental affliction, emotional affliction, and yes, spiritual affliction. We want to recognize that the Lord has put us here for such a time as this. And he's given us his Holy Spirit to do the things that we never thought we could do on our own. So let's pray in that direction. Heavenly Father, would you fill us with your Spirit? Would you energize us by your anointing to serve afflicted souls in in an afflicted city, in an afflicted world? Would you open our eyes to see where you at work and would you move our feet in the directions you would have us go so that we might be a benefit and a blessing in this world for as long as we have to be here? God, we thank you for planting the Hallows Church nine years ago and we recognize that our best days still lie ahead. And by your grace and under the power and influence of your Holy Spirit, we're going to see you do things we never thought possible. And so God, would you empower us, energize and anoint us to be the people you have called us to be. Let us be salt. Let us be light. Let us be peacemakers. Let us be anointed to serve in Jesus' name. Amen.